Christ is a warrior that conquers the world through his people. As we speak forth the doctrine of the gospel, we wage war along with Christ. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this morning I want you to take your Bibles and be turning with me to Isaiah chapter 49 in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 49. I thought it might be... um, a good idea for us this morning to have some sort of Christmas passage to consider, being that it's the day after Christmas, and I look forward next week to getting back uh, to our study in the Gospel of Mark. But this year for Christmas, I thought it would be a good idea to look at one of the, what is commonly called servant songs in the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 49 is the second servant song. Each one of these songs really refer to the humble reality, the suffering reality of our Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth, dressing himself in humanity's rags. But they also speak about his exalted glory and his worldwide mission as the Messiah. They speak about the fact that he was not merely a humble baby born in this world, but he is our exalted king. That so often is neglected during Christmas time. The reality of Christ, not merely as a baby in a manger, but Christ as the exalted king, the exalted warrior of God who will conquer the world for his own glory. So I just want to look at a sliver of Isaiah chapter 49. I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Allow me to begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 13. Let us hear God's word together. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for whom I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, 
princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear, they shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. This is the word of our living God. Please be seated and let's ask for His help as we look at this passage together. Our Father in heaven, we come before Your holy throne with Your word in our midst. Father, to understand the significance of the incarnation, which must be tethered together with the glorification of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to get a glimpse this morning of his glory, the glory of this suffering servant. Father, help us to see who he is, what he did for his people, how he was sent on mission to conquer the world for the glory of our triune God. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things from your word this morning. We pray these things in the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, which speaks about the poverty of our Savior. The fact that he became poor so that we might become rich. The servant songs and the prophet Isaiah really are a detailed record of Christ, the suffering servant, how he became poor on our behalf so that we might become rich, rich with the salvation blessings that come through the gospel. Jesus' story, the story of the suffering servant, is one of riches to rags. He left the riches of heaven. He clothed himself with the rags of this earth, the rags of humanity, but was then raised. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of our Father to rule and to reign. At Christ's first coming, there was not enough room for him in a small inn. But by the time of his second coming, Isaiah tells us, there will not be enough room for his glory, for it will fill the entire world. The prophets were known for speaking with this sort of language. For example, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 49 speaks about the coastlands. It speaks about those coming from sea to sea, from island to island. Really, the key verse is verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. The time 
of this fulfillment is found in the new covenant in the birth of the Messiah, the birth of our Savior. For when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem us who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ came to adopt His children into the family of God. This is Christ, the suffering servant. And Isaiah 49 tells us about the suffering of this servant, but it also tells us about the glorification of this servant, the exaltation of this servant, the victory of this servant to redeem his people, to buy them out of the slave market of sin, to deliver them from their captivity, and to become the ruler of this world. Isaiah 49, therefore, declares a future hope for God's people. And the coming and accomplished redemption of the Messiah, who is the the anointed king of Israel. I've subtitled this message, Called from the Womb, Hope for a New Year. Hope for a New Year. This one called forth from the womb. Verse 1 mentions, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Verse 3, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Verse 5, now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This is the suffering servant, born of a woman, born under the law, perfectly obedient to God's law, crucified, resurrected, and ascended to be the king of the world. This, therefore, is not just a passage that reminds us of the humiliation of Christ but most importantly of his glorification, his exaltation, his ascension, the fact that he is the anointed king of his one true people, Israel. And as such, there are three promises that we see here in verses 1 through 13 that remind us of Christ's ruling protection of his people. I call this called from the womb, hope for a new year, because we all need to be reminded who the true king is. Who is in control of this world? Who is in control of the governments of this world? Who is in control of the church? Who is in control of the universe? Well, this passage reminds us of three promises of Christ's ruling protection of His people. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 3 what I want to call a hope-filled preparation. A hope-filled preparation. They who are spoken to are God's elect people. Notice verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This is the Israel of God who is addressed. The Israel of God. Isaiah is speaking, but Isaiah is a type of Christ and is therefore speaking for Christ, on behalf of Christ. And he is addressing here not merely Jews, that is ethnic Jews, But notice those from all nations, from coast to coast, nations from distant shores. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. And we know that it is Christ who is speaking, Isaiah being the voice of Christ prophetically, because we read there in verse 1, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Christ was born 
As others were born in this world from the womb of a woman, she was a virgin woman, but she was a woman nonetheless. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation of Christ, that the Lord called him from the womb. That is to say, the Father predestined Jesus, called him from the womb to fill the office of Redeemer, to be the final prophet of all prophets that would speak forth the gospel. Isaiah was also called forth from the womb, as was Jeremiah. We read about that in Jeremiah 1.5. He was consecrated, set apart in the womb of his mother. The apostle Paul was consecrated from the womb of his mother to be an apostle. So this is common language to speak about the sovereignty of God, to speak about the fact that God has this thing figured out, that in eternity past, he has planned all of this. He has prepared the Savior who would come from the womb of the virgin. Psalm 22 speaks about this, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. This is our Savior. Just as Israel was the elect of God, chosen by God, so too was Christ the elect Savior of the one saved body of believers. It is Christ who has been chosen by the Father to be the one who would represent His people, born of a woman, born under the law. He represents His people Israel, and He is therefore protected by divine power. Notice the nature of this protection because of this preparation. Verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This is language of protection, language of preparation. God was preparing the Messiah and would protect the Messiah, the suffering servant, to be a human weapon, to be an instrument in the hand of God. God's weapons are a sword and a quiver. He has made his son a soldier. Notice verse 2 says, He made my mouth, Isaiah speaking on behalf of Christ, like a sharp sword. Because we know in other places in Scripture, the authority of Christ consists in the power of His Word, specifically the power of the doctrine of the gospel. Jesus is the head of the church, Jesus is the senior minister of the church the preacher of the church, the head of the one body, and his power comes through his spoken word of authority. He is not like other kings. His power and his authority don't come with the weapons of this world, but by the weapon of his mouth and the gospel which comes forth from it. We read in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Revelation, Jesus is described as one who has a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth, one who is even willing to make war with the visible church. He is a soldier. He is a warrior, king, the Messiah. He has come to make war with Satan. He has come to make war with sin. He has come to make war with death, to redeem his people Israel. 
he came as an Israelite to represent this people called forth from the womb. He is also not only a sharp sword, but notice verse 2, in the shadow of his hand he was hidden, the shadow of God's hand, and he was made a polished arrow. In his quiver, that is God's quiver, he was hidden away. The word of the gospel makes war with the world. This was Christ. Christ and his people are like a polished arrow, Isaiah says, hidden in God's quiver. This is the power of the gospel. The sword is for close combat. An arrow, however, can reach long distances, and that is the point. This is a God who will make war with sin. This is a God who will make war with Satan to his face, but this is a God who also has as a soldier one who has an arrow so that the gospel of Christ will reach the distant lands. We are one with this Christ, And through the voice of Christ speaking in his gospel, the church has grown in the world. Christ is a warrior that conquers the world through his people. As we speak forth the doctrine of the gospel, we wage war along with Christ. Jesus has all authority to do this. He made that clear prior to his ascension. He told The apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ is with us because Christ is in us. Christ became one of us so that he could make us, his elect people, one with him. We do combat with him in the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read in verse 3, He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Christ was the ideal Israelite, the only obedient son. So in the gospel, through our union with Christ, we are made one with Him. Our identity is wrapped up in Him So that if we have a right reading of this passage, we will see that Israel there in verse 3 does not merely refer to ethnic Israel. It does not merely refer to Christ alone, but it refers to both. He said to me, Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Messiah, the suffering servant, you are my servant Israel. Christ, we could therefore say, is the true Israel of God. He is the elect Savior for His one elect people. And through the gospel, through faith in Christ, we become one with Him. All of this was prepared by God who chose His people in Christ before the foundation of the world. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are as one body, so it is with Christ. We are part of the one body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true Israel that identifies all the true Israelites who come to this suffering servant. If you want a New Testament passage that undergirds this sort of interpretation of Isaiah 49, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. None is made more clear than Galatians chapter 3. 
God has been preparing this world that a Savior would be born, called from the womb of the Virgin Mother, who would be the true Israelite and whom all the true Israelites and true believers would become part of. Galatians chapter 3. He would reveal his glory in this Christ, who is the true Israel of God, and in this people who are connected to him through their union with him by faith. Galatians 3 verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the key offspring. Christ is the key seed of this family of God. He is the one you need to be related to. By faith, it is Christ. The whole lot of Abraham's children are not included. He doesn't say to seeds or to offsprings, but to one seed, because not all of Abraham's offspring were partakers of the salvation blessings. Ishmael was not part of the true Israel, elect of God. Esau was not part of the true Israel, the elect of God. Only a small remnant came out of Babylon, 50,000 came out of Babylon and returned to the land. That's part of what Isaiah is prophesying here. This is a hope-filled prophecy that they will be delivered. So under the name Israel, it's speaking about Christ. It's speaking about the true people of God who are connected to Christ who is the head. I mentioned this in Sunday school that a spouse will take on the name, a wife will take on the name of her husband. She will be joined to her husband. They will become one and she will carry his name. Such is true with the gospel. Through faith in Christ, our identity becomes Christ, who is our head, who we are married to. And because we are one with him, we take his name. But going back to Isaiah chapter 49, it's interesting to me that he also takes our name. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant Israel. That is the essence of the gospel, that he became like us. He was called forth from the womb. He became like us. He took our name upon himself, Israel, so that we could take upon ourselves his name, which is Christ. He is the ideal fulfillment of what his covenant people look like. So in the incarnation, God became like us so that in salvation, we would become like him him why so that through his glory we might be glorified notice the end of verse 3 in whom I will be glorified in whom I will be glorified we see this nature of our union with Christ this glorious doctrine come out clearly in John 17 if you flip over to John 17 the high priestly prayer of our Lord prior to our Lord's betrayal and crucifixion, he prays about receiving glory. John 17, pick up in verse 14. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth, 
Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, we could say, to borrow Isaiah's language, you called me forth from the womb of my mother. Why? So I have sent them into the world. They are one with me. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The only way that you can be part of the true family of God, the true Israel of God, is by being connected to the true Israelite of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, prepared from before the foundation of the world to be called forth from the womb of Mary, to live a perfect life. He consecrated himself through his purity and his obedience upon the cross. And here Jesus says, I'm going to consecrate my people. They will be sanctified in truth, namely the truth of the gospel. They will be set apart out of the world, part of me. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me, Father. In verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So when verse 3 says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified, it is Isaiah speaking, but it is Isaiah speaking on behalf of Christ and on behalf of the true Israel of God in and through whom Christ would be glorified and his people would be glorified as well. This has all been prepared, Isaiah is saying, from before the foundation of the world. Christ would be called forth from his mother. He would be this great warrior, sharp sword out of his mouth, hidden in the quiver of God. God has one people, who are protected by God through this one Savior, our life is hidden with Christ in God. There are no more two peoples of God than there are two Christs. If there is one Christ, then there is one Israel, one redeemed people who do not come from the seeds of Abraham, but from his one seed, as Paul says in Galatians 3, that is Christ. And if there is one Christ and there is one Israel, then there are not two kingdoms, one reigned over by Christ the Jew for the Jews and one reigned over by Christ over the Gentile church. Ethnicity doesn't save. The only pure bloodlines are those found in the spiritual lineage of Christ. Our promised protection comes only in and through Christ. In and through the one who was sent into this world, prepared to be the savior of this world, who made war with sin and made war with Satan to redeem us from our transgressions. So that we read in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. This is Christ speaking. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That is exactly what Christ did when he came. He invaded this world. 
He went to war with sin for the sake of his people, representing his one people to redeem them from sin, the true Israelite redeeming the one true Israel of God who have the faith of their father Abraham. This was God's plan. This is what God prepared from before the foundation of the world. It's not as if God chose ethnic Israel They rejected him and that surprised God. So he went and did this little program with Gentile believers and he's going to return back to Israel, ethnic Israel, who were his true people. No, there's one true people of God represented by one Savior, one King who rules over all. This is what Isaiah prophesied was prepared by God in the sending of Jesus Christ to be born of a woman. That is the hope-filled preparation. But that takes us, number two, to a hope-filled preservation. Verses four through eight. Every war has casualties and always will have a victor, but Isaiah promises that God won't be defeated. He will preserve his people. It doesn't mean the church won't face fierce battles because in the context of Isaiah, the visible church is being judged. So Christ speaks again in verse four, but I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. I said I've toiled in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Prophetically, this is speaking about Christ's first coming, isn't it? His humiliation, his being rejected by the nation of Israel, which he certainly was rejected by them. The Apostle John speaks very candidly, about this rejection, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's part of the theme of the suffering servant songs is the humiliation of Christ. If you go with me over to chapter 50, you'll see this in verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear those that are taught. The Lord's opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's the humiliation of our Lord. Or what about chapter 52 and verse 13? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is speaking about Christ upon the cross. He would sprinkle many nations. Verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed our report? Verse 1 of chapter 53. Verse 3, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's no wonder then that Isaiah is speaking on behalf of Christ here in Isaiah 49 that Christ would say, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. This is the humiliation of Christ. In the garden he sweat drops of blood. 
He prayed that he and the disciples would not enter into temptation. But here, Christ testifies to his confidence that though he was lowly, though he was stricken, though he was afflicted, though he was betrayed, though he was beaten, though he was crucified, his confidence that his work of redemption would be rewarded is highlighted in the second half of verse 4. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. He understood because he had been prepared from before the foundation of the world to be the one who would secure redemption for his people, punished in the place of his people, crushed for their iniquities. So Peter says he was reviled but didn't revile in return. He suffered, he didn't threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly and therefore bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Such must be the hope of God's people when they face hostility from the world. God preserved and rewarded his son and he will reward his sons because they, we've already seen, are united to him through faith. They are one with this true Israelite. So we read in verse 5, now the Lord says, here's this language again, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. We too are servants because we're connected to Christ. We too have been predestined, chosen in Christ, set apart in the womb. Christ says to bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. Now here is where we have to understand the prophecies in this sense. Isaiah is speaking for himself but he's also speaking for Christ and he's also speaking for all God's future ministers who are set apart from the womb to gather the lost sheep of Israel. The established church has as its mouthpieces of God, the preachers of God who preach the gospel, so the sheep are gathered in. I think this is a reference, first and foremost, to ethnic Israel being called out of Babylonian captivity. Uh, Because we read, if you just skip back uh, chapter 48, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So Isaiah is speaking immediately in the context to the fact that although you will be in exile, you will be delivered. And as I said earlier, 50,000 Israelites were brought back from the historic Babylon. But notice in verse 20 of chapter 48, it speaks about the fact that this message will be proclaimed to the end of the earth. So Isaiah is not just speaking to the immediate context, but beyond his context to speak about the salvation of the nations. The gathering of all of God's elect sheep. God will be sure to find his elect sheep. He will preserve his true Israel in Christ, the true Israelite. Christ is the true shepherd who will preserve his elect ethnic Israelites and even more than that, Ethnic elect Gentiles. Notice verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. Oh no, I will make you as a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is 
salvation of the one true God through the one true gospel in the one true Lord Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd, who will be faithful to call his sheep to himself and find them and rescue them through the gospel. What did Jesus say? John chapter 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, not of the Jewish fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says, as the shepherd The gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth because he has other sheep in another fold, namely from the nations who will come to know this Savior. This is the worldwide labor of gathering elect sheep, a worldwide conquering. To think any other way is to think too small, Isaiah says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. Oh no, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Christ is the light that came into the world, but all true believers who are connected to him and in union with him become the salt of the earth and the light of the world to proclaim the gospel. When did Christ become this light to the world? Well, Flip over with me to the book of Acts just quickly to chapter 13. This is very critical to see. This is not something that takes place in some future period. This has already taken place. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas were speaking boldly. And they say in verse 47, So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Again, he's quoting Isaiah. That's why it's important to remember that Israel that is spoken about in Isaiah 49 is a reference to Isaiah first and foremost, also to Christ, also to ethnic Israel that was alive in Isaiah's day, but also to the church. Paul understands that this is to be applied to him. He is a light to the nations for the Gentiles that he might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Quoting Isaiah, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Here we see the prophecy of Isaiah transpiring in the early days of the New Testament. The Jewish apostles had no problem understanding that God's program to save sinners did not end with ethnic Jews, but extended to Gentiles. And when the Jews rejected it, it didn't discourage them because they knew this was fulfillment of prophecy. They were to be a light to the nations. That's why Paul speaks about the fact that this is a mystery, a mystery hidden in former times in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, a mystery once hidden but now revealed. What is this mystery? Here it is, Paul says, Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. It was my job to be a light to the nations. It's the church's job to be a light to the nations. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. One Spirit. One Gospel. One Christ. One people of God. God had far greater plans for Christ's accomplished work of redemption than just saving a mere nation. He was after the nations. From the beginning, this was intended to be a worldwide conquering, a a worldwide and universal reversing of sin where Christ would be glorified, his people would be glorified with him as a light to the lost and dying world. So we read in verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. We already saw He was rejected by the nation. The servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Christ is called here the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One. Somewhat ironic because God is allowing his people to go into exile, but he is the redeemer of his people. He will preserve them no matter what exile they go into, whether it's Egypt or Babylon. This Holy One will redeem his people from all Babylonian and Egyptian kings. Babylonian and Egyptian kings even of our day, of which those Babylonian officials represent. He will redeem them. That word redeemed is a word referring to rescuing a person Rescuing them from slavery, buying them out of slavery. Isaiah uses this word redemption. He's very fond of it over 20 times. Christ came to redeem. The one abhorred by the nation, the one hated, the one rejected by Israel, but he is the servant of rulers. At his first coming, it was one of humiliation. He was rejected, crucified by human rulers, oppressed by tyrants of Rome. But notice it says, this is referring to a second coming, it'll be different. Kings shall see and arise, princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. He is the one and only true king to whom all kings and kingdoms will bow. I've quoted a number of times from Galatians chapter 6 and I just want to go and read the verses before it. Far be it from me to boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul says at the end of the day, it matters not if you were circumcised or not circumcised. And he's not talking about medicinally or you know, physically in terms of what we do today. He's talking about in the spiritual categories. Whether you're a Jew or not a Jew. Matters not if you've been circumcised or not circumcised. Matters not if you're physically part of the line of Abraham or you're not. None of that matters. None of that ultimately did matter in the larger scheme of things. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. The true Israel of God are those who have the faith of Abraham. Those who have trusted in Christ. 
So back in Isaiah 49, verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate places. Two key phrases there, time of favor and day of salvation. We could say when the fullness of time came. The day of salvation, the time of favor, when was that? Well, Paul quotes this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20, God making is an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, quoting Isaiah, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, quoting Isaiah, I have helped you. And then Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. All of what Isaiah is saying has been fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ who is calling his true people to himself to redeem them. So here's what you need to understand. When you read the Old Testament, when you read about ethnic Israel, their deliverances from Egypt, their deliverances from Babylon. Israel and their deliverances were mere prototypes of Christ who would rescue his one true people, whether Jew or Gentile, from Satan. Israel was one big historical illustration of what God would do for all of his true elect people who have the faith of Father Abraham. It is through Christ that God says, verse 8, I will keep you. I will preserve you. I will preserve my people through Christ. Through Christ. I will preserve. And it is to Christ, he says, and will give you as a covenant to the people. Christ is our mediator. The mediator of the covenant. It is through Christ that elect Jews and elect Gentiles are brought into one body. So Isaiah's message has a near and a far fulfillment to bring those who are near, that is ethnic Jews, and those who are far to Christ. And their deliverance and their returning to the land, as verse 8 says, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Their worship was restored, their communion with God was restored as illustrative of the fact that these Jews who had lived like Gentiles returned as a picture of Gentiles being brought near to God through Jesus, the mediator. Through the new covenant, this remnant becomes smaller and smaller. God is preserving his people and now the gospel has become a light to the nation. So now the remnant is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. God's people are rising to the surface. Through Christ, through faith in Christ, nothing can thwart the power of God to preserve His people in this world. Through the power of the gospel that is proclaimed, that's why Isaiah will say later in chapter 55, 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah is telling us about that here. The Messiah was prepared to be called from the womb of a woman in whom, by faith, all his people are connected and therefore preserved. As the good shepherd, he will preserve his people. He has sheep of another fold. He will call from the nations to bring them into this one body. He is faithful to do that. So this hope-filled preparation and hope-filled preservation leads us finally, number three, to a hope-filled provision. Verses 9 through 13, Jesus is a shepherd king. His reign, listen to this, will be felt throughout all the earth. Verse 9, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights, shall be their pasture. He says to the prisoners, come out. Those in darkness appear. This is what the gospel does. Of course, um, again, figurative language, Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus would quote that passage. He came to release us from our captivity and bondage to sin. He would even say that. He would tell them, you say you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Really? First of all, what about your own sin? Secondly, what about your captivity to Babylon and Egypt? They say, how is it that you say, Jesus, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It doesn't matter that you're circumcised. It doesn't matter that you come from Abraham. It doesn't matter that you were delivered from Egypt and Babylon. You're a slave of sin. Jesus says, a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. You have rejected the true offspring of Abraham, me, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ. Therefore, there is no salvation for you. There are many ethnic Jews, most ethnic Jews in our day reject Christ. Isaiah says, This Christ will turn to the nations. He will say to the prisoners, come out, those who are in darkness, appear. You can't be delivered from Satan's kingdom unless you know you are lost in darkness. That was Jesus' point to the Pharisees. But if you come to Christ, you will have salvation blessings. Notice they shall feed along the ways his people on all bare heights shall be their pasture. He's the good shepherd, right? He provides for his sheep. Fitting language because these Jews returning to the land 
um, would have journeyed through dry and barren deserts in their return. All of that would have reminded them of God providing them manna in the wilderness, water from the rock. But here, prophetically, Isaiah is saying that the rule of Christ means protection and provision from ultimate destruction. God will shepherd his people through rough historical passages. He will lead them. The Lord is our shepherd. Calvin says on this verse, the church is governed by Christ in such a manner as not to be free from the attacks and insults of men and is fed in such a manner as frequently to inhabit barren and frightened regions. But though enemies are at hand, God protects us from their violence and oppression. If we are thirsty or hungry, he is abundantly able to supply everything that is necessary for food and maintenance. And amidst perils and difficulties of this nature, we perceive his care more clearly than if we were placed beyond the reach of all danger. Prophesied by Isaiah, God will provide. Verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them, he will lead them. And by springs of water, he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised to them. On their return, Isaiah is saying, no obstacles will stand in their way. It will be as if mountains will be lowered in order to be passable. The valleys will be raised like flat highways. They will make it safely to their destination. The dispersed Jews will return in Isaiah's day. But Isaiah means also that God will collect his elect from every corner of the world. Because notice in verse 12, Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north, and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. This is not merely national salvation. This is international salvation. So that verse 13 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will provide for His people. He will preserve His people. Because this Messiah was prepared from before the foundation of the world to be called forth from the womb of the Virgin Mary, to be the true Israelite in whom all the true elect people of God place their faith, place their trust, place their hope. He is a suffering servant, but he is a saving servant. He is a humiliated servant, but he is an exalted servant. He will be glorified. And all of his people will be glorified with him. This is the promise of Isaiah. This great shepherd will comfort his people. He will bring us through the barren land. He will bring us through the desert. He will bring us through the valley. He is faithful. This is the timetable of God. This is the history of God. This is the purpose and the plan and the counsel of God. What does this mean for us today? Let me just give you a handful of practical points before we close. Number one, just know this. God has one program of salvation and one only. He has one program for his one true people through one gospel and he has placed over them one king. And Christ is ruling not merely in the next world, he's ruling in this world. 
His kingdom has been inaugurated. He has ascended far above all rule and all power and all authority. And the authority of Christ has been given to the church to proclaim the gospel. That's how Jesus conquers the world. He conquers the world through the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are not ashamed of the gospel. That is our weapon, the gospel. Secondly, and I've already mentioned this, we are not waiting for Christ's rule. He is ruling now. We are not waiting to enter the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdom of Christ now. And that means, number three, that all governments of this world are obligated to submit to the one true king. In fact, these verses declare, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. Number four, we can rightly tell people in our evangelism that Jesus is Lord, whether they recognize Him as Lord or not. He is Lord over all things. Fifth, this passage has already begun to be fulfilled, seen in the gospel stretching from coast to coast and to all the nations. So we must join with Christ in fighting the enemy, wanting to conquer every square inch of the globe for him. This begins in our hearts, extends to our families, to our church, to the governments of this world, then to the world at large. We are to demonstrate the reality of the rule and the reign of Christ in our lives. This is our witness. It's a real dangerous thing that occurs when God's people make too much of Christmas. And here's what I mean by that. They turn it into a holy day of the year, as if it's the most holy day. And unfortunately, for some professed Christian families, it's the only holy day of their year. They read the narrative of the birth of Christ. They go to church. But there is nothing in their lives that gives any indication whatsoever that Christ is their king. They don't submit to his word. They don't submit to his law. They're not repentant. They're not trusting in Christ. We showcase Christ's rule and reign. We showcase our faith in this one that Isaiah prophesied by submitting to this king, life and lip. So I ask you a penetrating question. Do you reveal the rule and the reign of Christ? Do you you seek escape from the culture or engagement with the culture? Are you pessimistic or optimistic? Are you living for the present or for the future? Is your mindset individual or is it generational? Do you understand that God is working out His plan and His purpose that finds its fulfillment in Christ and that this process takes time? This is a process that God has called us to be part of. You remember... Peter was so clear about this to those he wrote to who were suffering. Peter says this. 
He says that God will deliver you. He will deliver you from trials. He will deliver you. 2 Peter chapter 2 and then in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Day of the Lord, one day, Peter says, is like a thousand years. So when you look throughout all of history, you see what God did through all of Israel, through all of the rites, through all of the rituals, through all of the covenants. You see what he did in allowing so much time to pass before the Messiah was birthed into the world. The Messiah came, he was crucified, it appeared all hope was lost, but then he was resurrected, he ascended. Israel rejects him. The gospel goes to the nations. There's a plan and there's a purpose. Time continues to march on. Time continues to move on. And Isaiah is saying, don't give hope up in your hope of this promised Messiah. Have a hope-filled understanding that this Messiah has been prepared from before the foundation of the world to preserve his people, to provide for his people, ultimately someday to reign and to rule over this world, completely reversing the curse of sin. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the prophecies of your word that find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we understand that in celebrating the incarnation, we are celebrating that when the fullness of time came, You sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us who were under the law, under the curse of sin, to provide salvation for us, full and free. Lord, we ask that if there are those here that don't know this Savior, Lord, may they not leave without asking that someone show them from the word of God how they can have assurance of the forgiveness of sins, how they can have the surety of hope in this Savior who was sent to every corner of this world to redeem all sorts of sinners. Father, we pray that this church would be a lighthouse for the gospel. Lord, that we would declare Christ not only by our lip, but also by our lives. And everything that we say, everything that we do, declaring the Lordship and the reign of Christ over all things. Help us to be hopeful that the promises of the gospel will come to fruition even as we see them coming to reality in our own lives. Help us to be faithful, Lord, to this gospel and declaring this gospel that you might call all of your true elect sheep to yourself. We pray and ask all of these things in the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.